Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. We have so much to get to as the Chicago White Sox season has come to an end following their wildcard series against the Oakland Athletics, losing in three games. Dan Santa Romita joining us as well. James Fox, senior writer here on the podcast. Dan, lots of stuff to get to, like I mentioned. We'll start with you. I want to go over a few things before we get the conversation started. Rick Renteria out as manager, Don Cooper out as pitching coach. We have Rick Hahn quotes that we would like to share with all of you here on the Future Sox podcast that covers several things, including Garrett Crochet's injury, an update on Nick Madrigal, Jimmy Lambert, and just overall thoughts on the future of the organization. First things first, as we continue to, we'll get to it, right? Tony LaRussa, have to throw that in here uh, on the intro. We'll get to that, but first, Initial reactions, Dan, from you as the White Sox announced earlier last week that Rick Renteria is out as Chicago White Sox manager. Was this in the cards? Was this a reaction uh, to the way that he managed the last month or so of the season and into the playoffs? What do you think went behind the decision for Rick Hahn to move on from Rick Renteria? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, from the start of the season, I always kind of joked with a few friends like, you know, this is 20, when, when we had the shortened season and we knew they were going to come back to only 60 games, um, I was joking like, oh man, you know, this was supposed to be the year that Rick Renteria was supposed to underperform with a talented team and get fired. And I didn't think they would do it in a 60 game season because you're kind of missing some evaluation time. I also didn't think the Sox would be as good right away. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's like a lot in context that kind of changes how I view this because Going into the year, I thought, yeah, there's a decent chance this could be Renteria's last year. And then at the end of the year, I thought, eh, it seems less likely. He didn't really botch too many things. The team performed well. I mean, there's a few key decisions we can talk about, but um, I didn't really like that they staffed Game 3. I know James is actually more a fan of that, but that's a different issue. Um, I think it just came down to philosophical differences, and I'm sure we're going to get into this deeper. The first reaction is I was surprised and maybe even more surprised by Don Cooper just because it had been so long. I think when you look at that one more broadly, you go, okay, yeah, like it's time to have like a fresh take or a modern view of pitching. Um, someone who maybe relates to the younger guys better, whatever the reason. Um, it's just so weird to not have Don Cooper as a White Sox pitching coach. He's been the longest tenured part of the franchise you know, I guess he wasn't really fully on field, but like just someone you see, you know, in game day all the time. So that that was certainly very strange. Yeah, we'll get to Don Cooper here in a second. I think you hit on really important conversation points there because I think you're right in regards to Don Cooper's standing with the organization at this point. Uh, and we'll dive deeper into that. But James, I want to switch it to you because Dan also mentioned there's philosophical differences potentially between Rick Renteria and Rick Hahn. And as I framed the question, I mentioned, you know, the decision may have come because of the last month of the season. We actually have Rick Hahn stating that, no, it, it really wasn't. But at the same time, you can, you can think about the overall body of work, right? And just what the flaws were associated with Rick Renteria. And I, I believe Rick Hahn when he says that the game three had nothing to do with the decision and the last two weeks, we know that they had a chance to win the division, didn't really come to pass, questionable decisions in those games that could have been won. I I believe Rickon when he says that you know there was nothing to do with that. I I feel like this was an overall body of work type thing. 
maybe they didn't mesh overall in what the organization wanted to do as opposed to what Ricky was looking to do. And that's sort of the way things went and they wanted to move on at this point. It was all part of the plan is what I'm trying to say, James. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, not that like, I don't think game three was like the reason why he got fired, but I do think the front office left Ricky probably just enough rope to hang himself. And, and that he did. Right. So like all year, if you looked at Twitter, fans are, are mad and think Ricky Renteria is the worst manager in the league. And I don't, I don't think any of the three of us think that's true. Um, but then like, you know, you would kind of talk to guys closer to the team and beat writers and stuff who like said, absolutely not. Like Ricky's getting 2021, you know, he, he has another year in his contract. Like nobody thought this was happening. So, you know, even like Dan said, he was, you know, a little shocked about Don Cooper. There were whispers about Don Cooper stepping away last year. There was nothing on Ricky you know, as is evidenced by the, you know, the text message that I think I sent you, Mike, with like a bunch of expletives, like, and exclamation points after it. But I just think there was a lot of stuff this year and it came out after, of course, because that's the way these things work. Like Ricky wasn't doing some of the stuff that the front office wanted him to do in games. You know, some of the players even came out and, you know, told Ken Rosenthal and others that they didn't really like the way that Ricky didn't hold everybody accountable the same way. I mean, what Dallas Keuchel spoke up like after five games this year. And I think we kind of assumed that he was talking about, you know, his new teammates when maybe he was kind of talking about the whole operation there and how it just, you know, this wasn't what he was used to. And I think having the 60 game season during the pandemic, when you're beat writers and everybody that covers the team, like they're not in the locker room, they're not getting off the record quotes from players you know, I, I think it was just something that caught a lot of people off guard because, you know, like unless the White Sox are putting it out there, like it's probably not out there. And they did a really good job of like not letting anybody know. I think it's interesting when you talk about the way the front office wanted to implement their roster and the way Rick Renteria did it. Could you expound upon that a little bit? Did it relate to his management of the pen or, or his use of the rotation or in certain situations, looking at the data and saying, okay, this is how we should attack in at bat or in a plate appearance or what have you. Because yeah, I mean, you look at Rick Renteria's overall body of work, plenty of reasons why you can condemn him as, as a failure, as a manager, right? I mean, he didn't have a lot to work with in terms of talent over the bulk of his time here, but in defense of Rick Renteria, I wanted to, give him a little bit of credit for his 2020 season. I thought he did a, a pretty good job, say, after the first 10 games when, you know, he was batting Nicky Delmonico fourth. But I think overall he managed his bullpen well. He had a lot of young arms. And eventually when you had that set lineup, I didn't have much of a problem with the way he was sending his guys out there day to day. But going back to my question, James, what exactly do you mean by the organization and, and Renteria not so much on the same page? Yeah, like, I, I think he was actually okay, too. Um, and I don't know how much, like, position and lineup matters. You know, it, it obviously doesn't matter that much, like, over 162, but even, like, over 60. You know, like, you have Nick Delmonico playing. Like, look, like, Rick Delmonico, or Nick Delmonico being on the team, like, isn't Rick Renteria's fault, right? So that was, like, some of that early season stuff. You know, you could say that he stuck with Edwin Encarnacion too long. But again, like, I don't know that that's not the front office telling him, like, we paid for this guy and this guy needs to play. It just came out in a Daryl Van Scowen piece that, you know, Ricky and Coop kind of, you know, ignored some of the stuff that the front office wanted him to do. So my guess is in the bullpen, um, you know, when you see a Carlos Rodon pitching in scenarios that he's pitching in, 
um, when you see Jimmy Cordero pitching as often as he is. I think, you know, one of the big things was Dallas Keuchel. Um, I, was that in Cincinnati when he threw 114 pitches? I think it was before that. So he throws 114 pitches in a game, which is the most he's thrown in years, and then all of a sudden his back hurts. You know, that those those things are like big no-nos. And obviously, like, if, if people like us can sit around and criticize a manager over, like, stats and other stuff that we look up on fan graphs, like – you know, people in the front office are the worst offenders for that because they have way more information than we have. So, like, they're up there nitpicking every night probably. So, you know, I just think he kind of fell out of favor, and I do think they wanted to upgrade, and maybe they were always going to upgrade, and this is just, you know, whatever. But I do think there was some stuff along the way where it really makes, like, you know, fans and observers, it, it actually gives them, some like, tangible evidence where they're like oh yeah he did this this and this like of course he got fired whereas like i agree with you like this was probably coming they probably knew in march they didn't know who they were hiring but i think they kind of knew that ricky wasn't going to be the guy you know that was going to like lead them to a championship so dan right there when he says that you know maybe this was coming this is probably coming but also at the same time he mentioned the impact that a manager has on a ball club i'd love love to get your take on just how much a manager influences the outcome of ball games or over the course of a season. We don't have to talk about how they generate wins because I think that's really hard to, to kind of quantify. But at the same time, I have I have an opinion where the manager has a certain degree of impact on the outcome, but obviously it's on the players. I'm just curious, Dan, your take on Rick Renteria's way of managing in the clubhouse just by your perception of watching him across his tenure. Well, I think... Just more broadly, when you're talking about manager, there's two different aspects of what they do, or, or, you know, vaguely, right? Not super specific on that. But, like, the one side is kind of motivating players, getting them to get through the day-to-day grind, um, maybe developing them both from the baseball side and from, like, kind of the professional aspect of turning into adults uh, for a lot of these guys, especially with the younger team. And the other side is, as James was kind of talking about, the, the pure decision-making of a game, you know, whether it's matchups or how to use your bullpen or infield shifts or whatever have you in terms of different strategies. So from that perspective, I think Renteria was definitely brought on in the first place with the thought of developing younger players. And I I remember, I forget what year it was. It might've been 2018, could even been last year. my, My memory's fading in this one, but there was a time when Renteria pulled Yohan Moncada for not running out of ground ball the first that he was never going to beat out. And not only did he call him out in the dugout, which would have been fine, he yanked him out of the game. And it, like that was one of those things, and that, this is like me versus the old school kind of thing, but like that always kind of rubbed me as strange. It's like, it's 162 games. He was a young player. Uh, I guess you're trying to make like, I mean, it stuck with me, so maybe it stuck with Yohan too, and maybe that was the point, but like, it seemed like some of that stuff Renteria was, especially, you know, in the really rough years of the rebuild, was harsher on the players for that. And, you know, then we did get the Ricky's boys don't quit side of it, right, of where the team did seem to always keep playing hard and, and you know, make rallies in games they were pretty much out of on a fairly consistent basis for teams that weren't very good. So I think there's something to be said for him accomplishing a decent amount with this team. Um, and then, you know, on the analytical side or however you want to phrase the decision-making side, like 
he never really impressed me. I think lineups were kind of weird often. Um, you know, I think we cared about it more this year. I think it was actually more pronounced in previous years when you had, like, I mean, there were times, which is both a statement of the lineup, but I know last year when Moncada was in rehab in Charlotte and they had Madrigal and Luis Robert, like, I think the one through three or one through four of Charlotte was arguably better than the one through four of the White Sox because, like, Nikki Delmonico was bad in cleanup or something. Like, so, like, there was a lot of weird stuff in that way. Uh, I think I saw less of it this year, but it still was there. So, um, in terms of what you want a manager to be with what the team is going to be going forward and what they were this year, you want a guy who's going to be a little bit better at the decision-making process. So I think that's the natural progression. We've seen it in, in a lot of Chicago sports, like Scott Skiles was the A to B guy, and they brought in somebody else like who couldn't get him over the, the top. Maybe Tom Thibodeau was sort of the, the same. Like, so you bring in these coaches that are you know development guys, and then you bring in the winner or whatever. Yeah, I think it's uh it's a very fair point when you talk about the decision making impacting because the White Sox understand the whole body of work. I mean, they've had years with Recrenteria already, so they understand, but I think there's limitations to what he provides as a manager. If you're talking about a legitimate window, which Rick Hahn did mention and I'll, and I'll allow the listeners to to hear what he had to say, but when it comes to this team right now, they need somebody who's done it before, which he's mentioned. He talked about the ideal candidate to fill the role, and we can get into uh, the candidates here in a second. But I, I, before we even get into that conversation, I want to talk Don Cooper. But the idea of moving on from Rick Renteria right now fits the plan of what the Sox had all along, in my opinion, just reading the situation. Because you know what he is, what Rick Renteria is, is what he is. And there's always going to be these types of flaws because of the way he manages ball games. So you get a guy, like Rick Hahn said, ideal candidate with, postseason success over the recent past right so get somebody who's been there before get somebody who can manage a clubhouse and is in tune with what the front office is trying to do uh in overall analytics and, and what they're trying to incorporate philosophically overall so i think that makes sense i, I think the rick renteria firing makes complete sense and i think everybody probably like across the industry and fans were like oh yeah they're gonna like upgrade rick renteria but i think like people that pay closer attention, like even like us were stunned because like, yes, this is what makes sense. But like, I didn't think the White Sox were going to do it. Like I thought they were yeah. just going to stick with Rick Renteria. Like I believed them. Like yeah. I thought they like Ricky. Like, I don't think they're going to do that. Like, should they pull the Joe Madden thing? Sure. Yeah. Upgrade your manager. I just, I just like never believed yeah. it. And I don't think a lot of other people did either. No, that's fair. Upgrade the manager. You're trying to get better. There are better candidates than Rick Renteria. I think it's as simple as that. All right. And you, and, what do you mention Dallas Keuchel? And obviously we know the impact of Dallas Keuchel as a veteran and the way that he came out and said, hey, we're flat early in the season. I'm not here to, to play a team that's going to go through the motions, right? We need to pick it up to be a legitimate contender. And I think that was the start of just like when you bring in outside veterans and quality players who have seen success in the past and know what success looks like, when they're talking that way, it's a reflection of what's going on in the clubhouse. And again, we got to credit Rick Renteria for being a player's manager. Largely, we hear how the players love playing for him, and that's great. And the way he develops chemistry in the clubhouse, it's good stuff. But the overall body of work hasn't resulted in what the White Sox were looking for. And I bring up Dallas Keuchel because he also talked about the way he explained Don Cooper and the way that Don Cooper benefits the pitching staff. It kind of 
I don't know how to explain this. It caught me off guard by the way Keiko explained it that one game on Sunday Night Baseball. And I bring this up because it's it's telling to me that when a guy, again, enters a new organization and when you're asked about your pitching coach who's renowned and has all this prior success, he struggles to find the words to credit him, right? So I think that was a tell of where Don Cooper was currently in the modern MLB. And Dan, you hit it right on the head as we open the conversation. Let's talk the pitching coach situation as Don Cooper is also let go of the White Sox. I have a quote from Rick Hahn that talks about who he would like to see replace Don Cooper. And really, it could happen internally. Now is the right time to, to make a change of pitching coach. We do have some pretty good pitching coach candidates inside the organization. So it might ultimately be a promotion uh, with the new pitching coach. Could still come from outside, but I just wanted to make the point that when I reference the opportunity to sort of hear from outside voices and hear of a way to get a little bit more of a objective, perhaps, or non-insular view of where we're at as an organization and about how we do things, the manager interview process is a great opportunity to do that. That may well extend to the pitching coach interview process. I suspect it will, but it's not like that the managerial decision forced us to need to have an opening on the pitching side. Okay, so now after listening to that quote from Han talking about just the decision-making related to the pitching staff or the pitching coach, it was interesting for him to reference the fact that, yeah, we want to interview a manager who may provide a different outlook of what we are doing internally because internally we're sold. We think, as the White Sox, we are – we are where we want to be. The analytics and that side of it is where we want to be. The developmental side is great. The the player recognition, the talent, uh, you know, just in terms of the player development staff, player personnel, they're doing everything right. However, and that's why he referenced, yeah, we're going to consider an internal candidate. However, incorporating that outside vision, because it, it may be contingent on, say, a new manager coming in, wants to bring in his own, right? That has something to do with it. James, I'll, I'll kick it off with you just thinking about the way Rick Hahn sort of phrased that decision-making process where, yeah, he might, sure, consider an internal candidate, but he also wants to hear from the managerial candidates and what they bring to the table in terms of philosophical differences. Yeah, in regards to the next pitching coach, I mean, I think it, look, it doesn't make sense to do what they've always done, which is just like kept Don Cooper as whoever the new manager's pitching coach. Like Dan referenced, like Don Cooper's been in the organization since like 1981, I think. Like he was a minor league pitching coordinator. So, you know, while Don Cooper was great and did a lot of good things, you know, like you you want to give your manager the choice to like bring in his own pitching coach. Now, that's not what I think is going to happen. I think they know who their next pitching coach is. I think it's probably you know, one of the internal guys that we've talked about on this podcast before, Kurt Hassler's out in the bullpen now. He does a lot of their, you know, their data stuff with the big league club. Matt Zaleski is obviously a rising star, not only in the organization, but I think across the industry. He was promoted to AAA this year. And then Everett Tiford, um is is their director of pitching. Everett Tiford and Zaleski were both in Schaumburg. How many articles, you know, did our writers – produce where you know somebody had something good to say about Matt Zaleski or Everett Tiefer those are like the only guys you know that you would hear about so I would think it could be any of those guys as the next pitching coach I wouldn't be surprised if you know it's one of these things where like obviously they're not going to name the pitching coach before a manager but if pitching coach is internal 
I'm not going to be, I'd actually be kind of surprised if pitching coach is external at this point. I agree with you there. I agree with you there. And Dan, you know, you talked about the modern game, right? Moving past Don Cooper and what the Sox have internally. It sounds like the ideal pitching candidate is right there. And Kurt Hassler, Matt Zaleski, or maybe somebody else internally that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, the way Han said multiple internal candidates, because really the the only one, and maybe he was just saying this broadly, but the only one that came to mind was Zaleski. Uh, I think if it's not him, you know, maybe they do some different things in terms of structure about where these guys are, are most beneficial to the organization. But I also think it's worth noting when we're talking about the guy like Zaleski is how he's worked with, like like James referenced, like he's worked with a lot of these guys who are now coming up into the big league club you know, and that impact is, you know, that's, a, that's a little bit different when you're working with someone who knows you as, as the player. Um, you know, it's always good to have different voices in, in terms of coaching and, and anything, but I think, um, you know, these guys knowing Zaleski knowing how he works, I think is a good starting point because I think anytime a new coach comes in, it's always like, who the heck is this guy? What do I have to learn from him? And, um, I think you skip that with, with an internal candidate, especially Zaleski. Um, I do think the interesting thing, though, do you guys think um, the Schaumburg facility, the way they, they used that, was has changed it? Because everybody would have – a lot more of the coaches will have had spent more time with each other because pretty much every minor league coach, or most of them, were there, right, and working more on a day-to-day basis. I'm sure they had regular uh, communication – in a normal year, but guys are with different affiliates. This way, like the whole pitching coach staff or the analytics staff that are all working closely together. You think that maybe would have helped somebody who the org goes, wow, this guy's really good once we see him on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd be inclined to agree with that because I mean, Mad Zaleski, we've been hearing about for years at future Sox, but he would have been like in Charlotte. And I don't know, you know, I don't know where Everett Tiford was going to be like housed on a daily basis, right? Like if he's the pitching coordinator, like is he in Arizona just looking at reports or is he, you know, bouncing from affiliate to affiliate? Um, yeah, I think having them all in one spot, I think you kind of tell like, you know, who your who your best coaches are. And I think Getz was like actually like living in Schaumburg. So, you know, they were all there. That's where like, you know, it could be Hassler if like that that was like their plan all along. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of those Schaumburg guys at all. And I, I'm just thinking about Edward Tiford as the pitching coordinator and that position that he holds. And James, we talked about this a little bit, just what he does in that position within the organization. I wonder if there's room for a Matt Zaleski to maybe take on an executive role as a pitching coordinator and then allow Kurt Hassler to be the major league pitching coach. But at the same time, I kind of have this internal confliction because Matt Zaleski, like Dan said, has worked with almost all of these pitchers that the White Sox have at the big league level and the young pitchers who are working their way there. So there's there's a ton of value to understanding what you have internally. And a lot of these arms that are ready to make their debuts are homegrown, if not all of them. So there's value in Zaleski with the Major League Club. There's also value in Zaleski overseeing the entire operation uh, in terms of the pitching side. So I'm curious your take. You know, we kind of talked about this. I, I think it just depends on like what they think the end game is for a guy like Matt Zaleski. Like if, if they think Matt Zaleski is their future pitching coach, then maybe you just make Matt Zaleski the pitching coach and you leave um, Kurt Hassler in the bullpen, right? Because if you make Kurt Hassler your pitching coach, 
but you think Matt Zaleski's going to be your pitching coach, then are you like, you know, is it, you know, do you have to demote Kurt Hassler to like another spot at some point, like two years from now? I just, you know, I think it's going to be one of those guys. I think the easiest thing to do is to leave Everett Tiford like in the role that he's in. The, that probably makes the most sense. So, you know, with me saying that, he'll probably be the pitching coach. Like, okay, so let's shift, let's shift the focus from the pitching side because I agree with a lot of what both of you are saying here. And the internal candidate makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if they did go internal. Actually, I expect them to go internal. I would be surprised if they bring in a new manager and that manager convinces the front office to say, hey, this is my guy, this is who I want. Okay, let's do that. So in doing that, let's talk about the next managerial candidate for the Chicago White Sox or multiple candidates because, uh, boy, there's a report that came out, Bob Nightingale of USA Today. He mentioned Tony La Russa as a leading candidate, and the White Sox are approaching him. La Russa, if I'm not mistaken, hasn't managed since 2011, and he's been a part of executive roles with the Diamondbacks and the Boston Red Sox, as well as, most recently, uh, the Los Angeles Angels. So, you know, he hasn't been outside of the game, and we're focusing on La Russa right now because... You know, that's that's the name that's been brought up. But here's a clip that Rick Hahn said about his ideal managerial candidate in his press conference uh, last Monday. So I'll let you hear this and then and then we'll kind of dive into it because it's interesting. Ultimately, I think the best candidate or the ideal candidate is going to be someone who has experience with a championship organization in, in recent years, recent October experience with the championship organization would, would be ideal. But we're going to keep an open mind. And over this next several weeks, we'll diligently pursue who's on our lists and uh, go from there. So Han says recent October experience, championship experience. And then he also mentioned we're going to keep an open mind. Tony LaRusso qualifies with keeping an open mind here. However, where is this coming from, right? Where does this come from? Dan, you heard Rick Hahn talk about it. He wants recent championship experience. Tony Larusa has the pedigree, but he hasn't necessarily been a part of the managerial side of things for, for quite a bit now. I'm just trying to put these pieces together. From what Rick Hahn said, what was your takeaway from that? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the there's two things there. Like The Rick Hahn quote is a little bit out of character because he usually is very guarded. And he ended up, like you said, he ended up, We'll keep an open mind was him kind of covering all bases, but usually he doesn't give this much away in terms of key decisions like this. He'll usually kind of allude to something, but it's more vague than this. So I think him kind of describing the job listing uh, in a little more detail kind of surprised me. It makes sense that they would want that, but it certainly um, does limit the potential candidates. As far as Tony Larusa, man, I mean, uh, <laughs> like, I get your tinfoil hat on. Like, this is this is so weird. I think, I think there's two possible scenarios that make sense to me. Um, scenario one is Jerry Reinsdorf says, "Hey, I like Tony Larusa. I think he's worth interviewing. Um, you know, maybe he even pushes for him. So I think it'd be great for the job." And Rick says, "All right, we'll talk to him." And, you know, kind of makes nice with his boss. And, like, there's even – you could even go down the rabbit hole and say, like, even just interviewing La Russa, they could get something out of that if they don't have any intention of hiring him just to, like, 
hear the pitch of whatever he has compared to what it, what uh, what else who else they'd be talking to. And then scenario two is the White Sox really. This is where you really got to put the tinfoil hat on. Is the White Sox are worried about the the backlash from getting AJ Hinge, for example, and you know the the recent cheating scandal and all that. And so they that name comes out, and White Sox fans are you know some of them at least are oh no the cheater we don't want this guy, and then they float the Larusa rumor, and everyone goes oh no, we'll take Hinch we're sorry we'll take Hinch this is fine like <laughs> it could be that goofy. Um, so those are kind of more likely than any other thing I can come up with. It's hard to it's hard to argue that logic. It's very difficult because like I I don't want to dismiss it. Right. Like, but it's hard to imagine an organization doing something like that just to manipulate the fan base in terms of PR stuff, you know, but at the same time, I wouldn't put it past uh, this, this organization for doing that because they want to monitor the, what is out there. And they have a relationship with Bob Nightingale. And this is just being transparent. We're just talking, saying what it is. I personally can't imagine Tony LaRusso, like you said, Dan, I can't imagine He's the guy. And if, if the White Sox come to a conclusion that Larissa is the guy, I wonder what sold them. Because, of course, being away from the game in terms of being in the dugout, like his pedigree is outstanding. You talk about his passion for winning and relating to players. And he's even come around to analytics. But, like, that's me talking myself into even considering Larissa as a legitimate candidate. James, for me, it just, he's not. Come on, Mike. He, inv- he invented the bullpen. Darn it. That's what I keep hearing. Like he's, you know, he loves analytics and he invented the bullpen like 30 years ago or whatever it was. My God, make it stop, please. Um, I'm in pretty much in lockstep with you guys. You know, the White Sox do this though, Mike, where you say that like, you know, you you know, you kind of mentioned that, you know, I don't know that you didn't really know where it was coming from. The White Sox have notoriously done weird stuff like this. Like when they like they try to control the narrative, right? Like listening to Han the other day, you know, we were talking about how refreshing it was, right? And we're like, oh my God, like they're a real organization. And then this stuff comes out like not even 48 hours later because they have to be like weird and dumb like they always are. I don't think they're going to hire Tony La Russa. There's a reason why this is out there. Um, I I don't know if it's some sort of favor for him somehow or they want to get him into the organization as an advisor, which would be fine, I think. But, it, you know, if, if Rick Han is making this decision and you know many plugged in people have indicated this week that he is then there's no chance Tony LaRusso is going to be the manager of the White Sox for this White Sox team you know it kind of seemed like in those clips like at that press conference like he was basically describing AJ Hinch um so I don't know if this is like pushback against that because you couldn't even interview Hinch for two weeks like you can't let Hinch know that he's the number one contender even though that he probably is you know Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't enter many relationships like without the upper hand or without leverage. It could be, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, they've talked money. The White Sox think that like Hinch came in a little high. So then they float publicly like, Oh, we'll just hire Tony LaRusso instead. It could be that. I don't know what it is. Dan's right. That Dan's right. That it's something it's serving some sort of purpose. I, I just don't know what it is, but it does make me, you know, I, I just want the World Series to get here and end in four games so this can, like, stop as soon yeah, as Yeah, so it's like maybe it's a negotiation tactic to the point where A.J. Hinch is the top guy despite his flaws, right, and the, the cheating scandal on it. 
I have a hard time internally dealing with that, but it's all, it's like, I compare it to steroids. Like, you know, I am at the point where the steroid era was a part of history. And if you were going to dismiss the idea that the players who took steroids shouldn't be in the hall of fame, then I think you're, you're closed minded and it's not progressive in terms of where we're at. And when it comes to AJ Hinch, he cheated and I hate him for it. Right. But it's not going to make me say, I don't want him as my manager ultimately because of that very reason, he's a very good manager. He's an op like that's, that's the internal conflict I have when it comes to AJ Hinch. But at the same time, going back to the Larusa thing, and we can continue on Hinch here because I'd love to get Dan's take too. Larusa may, this may have been just Rick Hahn appeasing Jerry Reinsdorf say, Hey, Rick, talk to Larusa. You know, I have a relationship with him. We go back. I think he's a good, he, he's a good candidate. And then Rick Hahn says, okay, Kenny Williams, go tell Bob Nightingale that he's the leading candidate at this point. Because at this point he is, because nobody else is, is available to be interviewed. Yeah, it's it's Jerry Reinsdorf's biggest regret, right? Was Allowing uh, Hawk. Letting Hawk <laughs> letting Hawk Harrelson fire Tony LaRussa in like nineteen eighty six. And this is gonna be like a you know, Hollywood ending where they, you know, live out their days together with a championship. That's what Bob or said. He said that on oh, the Oh my god, I he know. He said that exactly. Yeah, thing. it's like it's like old baseball executive Brokeback Mountain. Interesting. Uh, Dan, uh, let, let me get your take there. Um, just if you have any LaRusa thoughts and then your perception of A.J. Hinch, who apparently is the leading candidate among outside of LaRusa at this point uh, from the media. Yeah, I think I think the Hinch thing is interesting because, like like James said, Han basically described his resume when he was giving out the, you know, what they're looking for, uh, the characteristics they want. So, look, I think the thing that people are going to get worked up about is obviously the cheating scandal and that'll give the White Sox a fair amount of attention, which will be unusual for them. But I personally, I don't really care. Like that's fine. You know, there's plenty of unsavory stuff that's happened in baseball's history and still happens today. And I'm not condoning it, but I'm not going to say that, Like if they hire him, a guy who's clearly a good manager and has ties to guys in the front office so they know what they're getting, you know, like if this is the guy, I guess I'll put it this way. If this is the guy that Rick Hahn and Ken Williams and whoever else in the front office is making this decision, if he's the guy they think gives them the best chance to win a championship, then hire him and who cares about the baggage. Um, I think that's pretty much where I stand on it. Like, you know, I'll, I'll, quote a friend of mine from like 12 years ago before the Cubs had won, but he was like, you know, just to see a Cubs world series, I'd personally inject the team with steroids myself. <laughs> like, so like there's you, the cheating stuff is like, you know, I don't know, just win. Like, yeah, it happened. Yeah. It happened. Uh, it, it give them an opportunity to move on and, you know, do it legitimately. And that's fine. It happened. Move on. So I will say like me and Dan are similar in this regard. And Mike, like I completely, like respect the opinion and you're not the only one like trust me it's it's me with loose morals like for sure it's just for me it's sports and I compartmentalize these things and I honestly couldn't care any less like I you know as soon as I saw you know I was like wow maybe they can get AJ Hinch because the Astros fired him like I I, like the, the reason why he was fired like I guess what was like not even like a thing for me for me, it's immediately like, oh my God, they can get this like undervalued manager for cheaper. That That's immediately where my mind goes. And that probably makes me a bad person and I'm totally fine with it. But like, yeah, like I, I just like, this team has made the playoffs five times in my life and I want them to win baseball games. And if it takes AJ Hinch to do that, like I'm, I'm good. 
So is AJ Hinch going to come over and bring his cheating mentality to the White Sox? No, I don't think so. I think he's going to just manage a baseball club because it's it's pretty apparent that Major League Baseball is on to the to the uh, competitive advantage type deals that teams are trying to implement day in and day out. So yeah, it's just the you you look at the body of work, it speaks for itself and. I might get condemned for saying that, but yeah, because he was a cheater, it helped his case. But at the same time, he has a lot of the qualities that transfer to being a World Series manager. I think it's as simple as that. And in addition to those qualities, I will say like relationships matter yes. for this yes. this franchise, right? They always have. Dan, and you could, you know, I guess chime in here too, obviously, but you know, it's always like, you know, is the next manager going to be Jim Tomey or is it going to be AJ Pierzynski or is it like, they're going to like pull Mark Burley out of Missouri and it's not going to be that right. It's going to be somebody from the outside, but if it's AJ Hinch, it's somebody from the outside who was drafted by the White Sox before who went to Stanford where Kenny Williams went and who was represented by Rick Hahn when he was young in the agent, you know, in the agency of Jeff Morad when he represented AJ Hinch. So, you know, there are still ties here if it ends up being AJ Hinch. Yeah. And I think that's a great point because the, the way the White Sox have handled this has been very un-White Sox-like. We tend like, I can't believe the White Sox got rid of Renteria, even though we thought they maybe should. Um, and also I'll say like, and you guys are kind of touching on it, like, I, as I was t- talking about with Renteria being the developmental coach, I don't think I would want Hinch to be the guy leading the 2018 or 19 White Sox. But now that they're a winning team, this is the guy that can win you games. The, the players are mostly fully formed. Um, there's going to be some guys still coming through, obviously. But, like, you know, your guys are your guys at this point. Like, they're um, they're they're ready to rock. So, like, get the guy who can win and don't worry about other stuff. Like, Tim Anderson's not suddenly going to change because A.J. Hinch cheated in Houston. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm with you. And Rick Hahn mentioned, he talked about it, and you, you were kind of alluding to the fact that the window is open and they're ready to roll. This is what Rick Hahn said related to the White Sox being a desirable landing spot and the, they're ready to win right now. I think it's perfectly reasonable to believe that we've opened our window. Uh, we talked about it this time last year. We talked about the fact that we were moving sort of that second stage finished sort of the talent accumulation stage for the most part, building a core. We wanted to augment that group and ideally transition to a team that's capable of competing for championships. We have flaws still. We have holes that we're going to have to hopefully address over the coming weeks and months. But this is a team that should reasonably have championship aspirations. And I think, quite frankly, we should be viewed as a very desirable landing spot for a potential manager. Uh, We're a team that you know, not only gets to play in Chicago and, and have tremendous support, but we're a team that's poised to potentially go on an extended run here. So we, uh, we're we looking for that right fit that's going to be able to take us to that next step. So after listening to Rick Hahn, he essentially was talking about, yeah, this is Chicago. We have a team that's ready to win, and we want a manager to manage this club to do that. And I think A.J. Hinch is the guy. Now, Alex Cora, also rumored. Bruce Bochy also responded to the question, yeah, I'll listen. Why not? Of course. So there are other candidates at this point. However, I'm just, I, I sold on A.J. Hinch. I'm sorry. That's that's where I'm at at this point. Final thoughts on A.J. Hinch, and we can move on to some other topics. James, your opinion there on, on Hinch. 
Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he would be my top target. I mean, obviously there's, you know, the plethora of issues and they'd have to deal with those issues, I think, like as soon as he gets here and they'd kind of have to, you know, save a little face and everybody likes a redemption story. But I mean, A.J. Hinch is a 46-year-old manager who pretty much does all the stuff that they're looking for. I mean, A.J. Hinch could be here for a decade if it works out, you know. So while, you know, like Bruce Bochy's a legend, like Bruce Bochy would be fine. But I think you're looking to replace Bruce Bochy again, you know, like pretty soon. That I think Hinch makes the most sense because of the fact, you know, that age and the relationship and if it works, like it could, it could work for um, a really long time. So obviously, you know, they can't even interview AJ Hinch until after the World Series. So we're going to have a little bit longer. But you know that that's kind of where I stand on it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of think that he's going to be the guy, like until he's not. Yeah, I agree with James there. I, I think Hinch seems the most likely. I've talked myself into that. I'm, I'm fine with it. Bochy would be fine too. Um, you know, managers and like. You don't really, especially because there's a lot more um, teams skewing younger with manager hires. Like, you don't always know what you're going to get with a lot of these guys. Like, as long as, you know, they're not hiring Tony La Russa or even, like, Dusty Baker, for example. I know he's he's in Houston, but, like, just – just there's very few guys that I would object to, um, you know, without really seeing them manage. Yeah, and I think uh, overall when Rickon talks about – first of all, I trust Rickon. For making this decision and when he's saying that he wants championship pedigree I think he's going to go out and get somebody with that he wouldn't say it if he wasn't looking for it so I don't know internally the conversations but I feel confident that they'll make the right decision and get the guy who they think is the best fit so that's good enough for me even going back to when he first started I think Rickon's been very transparent I think he's said exactly what he's what the goal is without saying too much right I mean he's very vague about a lot of things like when White Sox fans wanted him to get going in terms of going out and getting free agents, spending the money, I think he was he was aggressive in attacking certain areas, but he's been true to this day to whatever he's, his message has been uh, over his tenure as GM of the White Sox. So that being said, let's move on to a couple more conversations before we end this podcast. Lots to get to, of course, as the 2020 regular season and playoff season for the White Sox concluded. Yeah, they made the playoffs. That's fantastic. However, there's there's still more there, and we know that. And there's some flaws within this club. We're going to talk now about some of the expectations that both James, Dan, and myself have for the organization uh, as they head into the offseason, trying to uh, improve on what, what their roster stands at this point, or how their roster stands, as well as give you an update on some key injuries that what Rick Hahn addressed in his press conference related to Garrett Crochet and Nick Madrigal, um, and and uh, Jimmy Lambert. So first, let's throw it to James. I'd like to kick this conversation off with the needs of the organization at this point. To me, it is starting pitching. I think that is number one. What's your take there, James? Yeah, I think pitching has to be number one. Uh, starting pitching, preferably. I mean, you know, you had two pitchers down the stretch, and obviously, like, look, there's like a lot of these pitchers who we've covered extensively that you know could still be really good. I think Dane Dunning has earned himself a place in the rotation, whether that's like, you know, in the back part of it. Um, I, Michael Kopech's expected back. They're going to give him that opportunity right away. I don't know. Dylan C's underachieved quite a bit, but it's only like 26 starts, I believe. So like these guys are all in the mix, but you cannot go into a season trying to win an American league central, you know, with, Dane Dunning, Dylan Cease, and Michael Kopech as your three, four, and five starters. So I'd be I'd be really surprised if they didn't add a starter. 
I think they'll cast a wide net. I th- obviously, I think that's probably some, another more Han lingo there. But, you know, like if you revisit talks for Lance Lynn or you look on the free agent market for Marcus Stroman or somebody like that, but I do think that's going to be probably the focus of the offseason is starting pitching. They do have, you know, they have issues at DH and right field that we can get into, but pitching is is definitely their biggest need by far. Yeah, and I, I feel like the names that the White Sox have internally already are, are solid. I think that's very encouraging to have, but also you need stability. You need to improve that rotation. You need to have a consistent top three. So, Dan, just that being said, I, I don't know how you feel about the pitching staff at this point or if there's any other areas of need that you believe um, kind of surpasses the need of the pitching staff. Just curious on what you're thinking about the White Sox situation at this point. Starting pitching for sure has to be the first thing. I think I think the bullpen was actually very good by the end of the year once everyone was healthy. I know that the Game 3 staff game might see otherwise, but like Cody Hoyer didn't give up a run in September. Matt Foster was amazingly good. Aaron Bummer, solid. Um you know what you're getting in Evan Marshall. Jimmy Cordero can at least eat innings. This kind of became a running joke this season. Uh, you know, and Alex Colomay is a free agent, but was, you know, a good closer. So it's like the bullpen is fine. There's more arms. Like if someone like Zach Birdie develops or maybe Bernardo Flores, or Bernardo Flores can become a, a lefty option. So like I think internally there's enough other options in the bullpen. That you can kind of leave that as is. Uh, I think the big thing is – starting pitching like obviously I think I think the the thing that we have to keep in mind though is the starting pitching will be better next year because you're looking at Giolito and Keiko is a very solid one too I think Michael Kopech's probably your number three like I have a lot of confidence in his game I mean we saw in spring training this year him hitting 100 miles an hour consistently so stuff wise he seemed to be back from surgery and I think they do have the ability to work with all three of those guys, as James said, in the rotation um, in terms of adding in Dylan Cease and Dane Dunning. I think Dane Dunning absolutely gets a spot in the rotation. I think Cease remains a question mark, but you're not going to get 200 innings out of Michael Kopech. So you can probably add a pitcher and still evaluate all three of those guys as starting pitchers. And so that, probably will be a, a kind of cop-out for the Sox to to work through that, I think. I, I think it's totally fair to have questions regarding Dylan Cease specifically. Even Rick Hahn mentioned it in the presser. He talked about, yeah, you know, only 26 through 26 starts or so. There's still some questions there. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was his message. And it's apparent because he hasn't been able to put it together. And there's questions, like you mentioned, Dan, related to the health of several pitchers. And one of these players that, and, and I'll play the uh, update on the health situations for Lambert and Crochet and Madrigal, of course, from Han here in a bit. But he mentioned that Garrett Crochet's injury wasn't as serious as, as maybe some may have thought, right? When you look at a forearm strain, it, it may lead to uh, a serious injury like Tommy John surgery, but it's just a flexor strain that he can rehab without surgery. And that's very encouraging. So with that being said, like the development now of Garrett Crochet, They drafted him with the intention, I believe, of developing him as a starter. We saw him out of the bullpen, and he put on size. He added the velocity. The stuff improved while he was with the White Sox in the organization. A lot of stress on his arm, though, right? Because it's really the first time that he's been able to to pump out 100 miles an hour with a devastating slider, 87 miles an hour or whatever. 
consistently and, and put that much stress on his arms. So it's encouraging news to hear that he's that he's it's not as bad as we thought. And now we can question what his role is going to be in 2021. How are they going to develop Garrett Crochet, James, as we move on to next season, just in the immediate sense? So, I, I mean, I think, you know, he's probably in big league spring training. And then I think he's probably a starting pitcher at Birmingham or wherever your double A affiliate is, or maybe they'll start him in high A. I mean, look, if they think he's a starter, which they do, he's got to go down and pitch. I mean, he's got to pitch probably 100 innings. So I think that's like the best outcome. I mean, people aren't going to like it because they've they've seen him now, right? It's like the shiny new toy. And I think a lot of people would be content with him just like being in the bullpen all year and being awesome. And while that would be cool, like you just, you don't use the 11th overall pick on that. So I think he goes down. I think he starts. I think he gets to some sort of like innings limit in the minors. And then he comes up late in the year out of the big league bullpen, like down the stretch and for the playoffs. And then hopefully he's, you know, knock on wood, like there's no more injury concerns. Like he, he could be in the big league rotation, I think in 2022, then the following season is what I would do. Han indicated that, you know, like maybe they could develop him like through the, via the bullpen. I just like, don't really see that as plausible if they think he's a starter long-term. It's, I don't, I just, I don't see him getting the number of innings that he would need to transition to a starter's role. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if the Sox are contending next year and you need a guy like Crochet out of the pen, I don't think I don't think we should dismiss the idea of his role as a multi-inning reliever, but I agree with you overall that he should develop as a starter. Dan, your opinion on the way and I guess what what do you want the White Sox to do in terms of developing Crochet at this point? I think James got it spot on. I think you send him to double A as a starter. I think his stuff's probably a little too good for A ball. I think it would kind of be a waste of his time. Um, I mean, look, and you talked about his slider. Like, I'm, I'm looking at his stat cast right now. He threw, this doesn't include his short playoff appearance, but he threw uh, 85 pitches all year. <laughs> like, he didn't pitch that much, and only nine of them were sliders. So they went incredibly fastball heavy. He threw 72 fastballs out of his 85 pitches. So I think that was kind of... One, I think it was the catchers recognizing, oh my God, this guy's fastball is incredible. Why even bother with another pitch? But um, I think on top of that, it was like, you know, be a little easy on his arm given, you know, the weird, he did kind of enter the college season with a minor injury. They kind of babied him and he, he was probably fine. They were just playing it safe. And um, he only got to pitch one start and that was a short one. And then the season stopped. And it's like all that stuff adds up to, uh, crochet not really having a big workload, which is, you know, both a blessing and a curse, right? His arm should be in good shape, and I'm sure they took good care of him in Schaumburg because they weren't, um, you know, playing real games. They can take him out whenever they want or, or have him work on a specific thing and not have any repercussions. So I think clearly the best route is for him to be a double-A starter. I think there's definitely value in him in the bullpen, and I think it's someone you bring up in August to get him on the playoff roster, um, you know, and use him that way. Because he's obviously incredibly valuable. And, you know, you've already got the service time clock running. I know pitching, you don't really worry about that because so many things happen. And the White Sox obviously didn't. So I think you'll see him in the majors next year because he's already been up and they know he can get guys out. But um, I, I'd be kind of surprised if we see him start more than a game or two in, with the Major League Club. It's probably a late bullpen roll after a year in the minors. 
Mike, I think, you know, Gary Crochet in, you know, a season like this where we were doing our stuff like early in the year and we didn't really know what we were going to get. Right. And then even we covered the draft and, you know, a lot of people were apprehensive about Garrett Crochet, myself included. I mean, but like, look, his stuff didn't look like this then. And we wrote numerous stories on this kid. And the coolest thing was that like, you know, it's kind of like, Dan, I think we talked about you just like one day you wake up and you have superpowers and that's kind of what happened to Garrett Crochet. Like he just like one, he's just awesome now. And he wasn't awesome, you know, a year and a half ago, even like he's, and it was like one of the most interesting storylines of the season. Dan, you've been doing this a while. That's, that's an 80 fastball, right? That's not what it was, you know, billed as, but that's, that's what it looks like to me. I don't see anyone with a, I mean, there are fastballs as good. I don't know about better. Like it's, it's up there. Yeah. It's some of the, like when you talk about James right there, like we didn't necessarily expect, like I thought it was in there, right. With, with crochet, it was in there, but he had a little bit of a development to go in order to reach that type of uh, potential, right? And we saw a glimpse of it because he put on a lot of size. And still, James, like when we're talking about his usage in college, 13 starts over 30, or 13, yeah, 13 starts over 36 appearances. He didn't have the the upper 90s fastball yet. It was still in development. And really, as he was approaching his junior year, that was when he was set to take that next step. And that's what the White Sox were looking forward to and scouting him. They were like, okay, at Tennessee, he is going to be a starter who is going to be there, you know, whenever his name is called, whenever his name's uh, uh, on the lineup card, he's going to go out and pitch as a starter. So that's the value in having him as the 11th overall pick. And one last thing before I throw it to you is that release point. It is so deceptive. How is anybody going to be able to catch up to that, on a, especially when you're a left-handed hitter, on a fastball up and in, coming in at your hands? I mean, that is like almost untouchable because of the way – the ball is so deceptive out of his hand. It looks like it's coming at you faster than 100. It could be like 110 in the hitter's eye just because of the arming action. Yeah. And it, you know, it could be one of those things where like, you know, some of the stuff and like the platitudes that were mentioned after like his first appearance sounds like stuff that people just say, right? Like when like Jim Callis comes out and he says, Oh yeah. Like if there was a college baseball season, like he's probably a top five pick, like in the white Sox got lucky and they stole him. But like that's that's probably true. Like I don't think we heard a lot of that leading up to it, right? It was oh, there's some questions about whether he can start or not, and there's like an injury concern that Dan touched on. Like I don't think anybody thought it was this, and when they brought him up, I was like, okay, like that's cool, like another lefty out of the bullpen. But like we could go back and look at our Slack threads, like nobody was expecting like that first night in Cincinnati where he's pumping a hundred every pitch and just like looks otherworldly, like what, it, what, it, you know, you look at the Reds hitters, like looking at each other, like, oh my God, like, what is that guy? Like what, you know, like that was, uh, it was pretty cool, man. And I think it was cool because even though he was at Schaumburg and I saw him pitch there and like, we knew he was going to be pretty good. Like I know, I don't think anybody was expecting what it ended up like turning into. I think I want to stress this. I'm going to play the Rick Hahn cut. I want to stress the importance of the limited amount of innings that Garrett Crochet had across his collegiate career, across his junior career, obviously junior season, three and a third innings only, and then gets drafted and then pitches pretty much entirely over at Schaumburg until he got called up right on a, on a regimented um, schedule. However, that is important to understand just the stress that he just put himself through for the first time, like heavily, like this is a lot that uh, Crochet just went through in his first professional season. 
Uh, a cool little note, you know, the first pitcher since, who was that, Mike Leake in 20, uh, 2010 to make his debut before throwing a pitch in the minor leagues. That That's pretty cool in Garrett Crochet's case. All right, so here's what Rick Hahn had to say about a couple of injury notes. This was the first time that we got an update uh, from where these key pieces had uh, following the conclusion of the season. We'll give you a couple of health updates, and obviously feel free to ask about any any others along the way that I may forget about. Uh, Garrett Crochet, the information is good. It's positive. He is dealing with a uh, flexor strain, essentially a muscle strain in the forearm. The ulnar collateral ligament is is clean, uh, no issues there, and we suspect uh, we expect him to uh, continue to progress and feel fine in a matter of weeks and be without restriction come next spring. So that's obviously uh, was a little bit scary for all of us. You don't like any pitcher having discomfort anywhere in his arm, uh, but all things considered, this is uh, probably as good as a result as we, we could have hoped for here. Nick Madrigal had, as expected, his shoulder repaired once the season ended last week, I believe Tuesday. That was a planned procedure based on the shoulder separation that is going to stabilize the area and make it so that, that knock on wood, he should not suffer from a, another separation. The recovery time for that can range from five to six months. So it's conceivable that when we get to spring training that he still is on a rehab program, but we obviously won't know about that until things get a little bit closer. Uh, as for Jimmy Lambert, he continues to progress. He had a follow-up at the end of the year. Uh, I believe he'll begin on a throwing program after a couple of weeks. Uh, and at this point, it, it continues to be uh, a more significant forearm flexor issue than what we're dealing with crochet in terms of degree, but one that we are, are optimistic will not be a factor going forward once he completes his rehab. So what we heard there from Han is encouraging. I think Jimmy Lambert was the more disappointing news, but you heard Nick Madrigal had the separated shoulders and uh, the surgery to stabilize that separated shoulder. It'll impact his offseason because like he said, this could linger into the start of spring training and even the beginning of the season. We're, we're not sure. So like with that being said, let's start with Nick Madrigal and Dan, your just take on the way that this will affect Madrigal because, you know, he played essentially a full season with the White Sox in this condensed set. And it's apparent that he's ready to play at the big leagues. Do you think this injury kind of uh, slows his progression down? Do you think he begins the year at AAA maybe, or is this just a natural progression where he's got to get healthy and then when he's ready, he'll be in the big leagues? I don't think from a development standpoint, there's too much risk. I think the only thing is the exact timing. Um, like if he misses half a spring training, maybe he gets off to like a slow week or something, but his game is kind of weird in that I, I don't know that he's as much of a timing and like reps guy as other hitters. Because, you know, he takes shorter swings. He's got this freakish um, hand-eye bat-to-ball skill. So I think he might be more immune to that. I think his, his, the injury seemed relatively minor in that it didn't seem to affect his play. Um, if I recall, it was actually his non-throwing arm, too. So, like, we didn't see it in the field. Um, I, I don't think there's too much concern here. Uh, if it was a major injury, they would have had the surgery during the year. So I, I think it's fine. The only thing is if like he misses enough of spring training where like he gets a little bit too far behind. But I don't think he's a high risk for that. Yeah, the left shoulder was the injury. James, any thoughts there? And anything that you'd like to touch on related to Jimmy Lambert as well? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Dan on Magical there. I think he'll be fine. I mean, he what he still hit like 340 or something crazy, like with a separated shoulder. So the way he plays, I think it's fine. I think, you know, if Larry Garcia or somebody else is your starting second baseman, like on opening day because of it, like I think that's fine. I, I don't foresee Nick Madrigal going back to the minor leagues at all. I think he was kind of as advertised, <clears throat> I think, other than, you know, maybe some of the, the base running stuff. And, you know, I think I thought he was going to be a little bit better defensively. So maybe the shoulder hurt him a little bit defensively because I think he's a little better than that. But, you know, in regards to him, I think it's fine. I think he's their second baseman next year and, you know, probably for a while after that. Jimmy Lambert is an interesting case because I didn't know – like Jimmy Lambert made it to the big leagues. He was pitching in, in relief – um, he likely doesn't make it to the major leagues, I feel like, last year in a full season. He ramped up. He pitched awesome out of the bullpen. But I kind of thought, like, maybe they'd move Jimmy Lambert back into a starting pitching role, you know, like, for this upcoming season, like, back in the minors, and then he's another one of your starting candidates. I think now, with another forearm injury, maybe they just make him a reliever long-term, and he becomes part of this, like, young bullpen that they have. Yeah, the Jimmy Lambert injury was really disappointing. I mean, he pushed himself following Tommy John surgery, and we saw him at the at the extended summer spring training or whatever that was, uh, and he worked, and he continued to work on a, as if he was completely healthy. And you'll never know. It always is very unique to each individual when they're dealing with a major uh, injury like what Lambert suffered. So it was encouraging to see him in the big leagues, and it was also encouraging to finally get a taste of what he's able to provide because his stuff is there. I mean, it's big league caliber for sure. We're just hoping that he can, you know, progress through this injury without another serious uh, surgery in place. So that's a little bit of an update there on some core White Sox pieces that were injured uh, at the latter part of the season. Let's move on to a couple final topics. I wanted to talk Nomar Mazar, but we are running late, man. We are <laughs> we are moving in this podcast. But I just wanted to bring up the idea that I don't think it's so cut and dry where. Nomar Mazar is going to be non-tendered guaranteed. I don't know how you guys feel about this. There's a couple things just real quick I want to mention about Mazar, and then we can wrap things up. I think the White Sox wouldn't go out and trade for Mazara just to cut him after one season, for one. And two, I think the White Sox were doing their due diligence and changing his approach a little bit. I think they wanted to shorten him up to the point where, hey, stop swinging for home runs you got the power there. It'll come as long as you're making consistent contact and to be able to do that, you got to shorten up your swing. So I think the project with Mazzara across the 60 game campaign, and again, it is a little unfair to Mazzara to just dump him. you know, like, I don't know. I'm another thing where I'm conflicted at. I'm not trying to advocate that there's not an upgrade available. I just think that it's not out of the question that the White Sox bring him back, allow him a chance. And then, if he's bad, they're going to have to move on from him, say, in June or so. But that also doesn't preclude them from picking up a guy like George Springer in the offseason. Right? I think they should spend and improve. I think Edwin Encarnacion is out. Uh, they need to open that DH spot for a guy like Vaughn, as McCann, I don't believe, is coming back. And if you get a right fielder, then you can manipulate the DH a little bit better. But again, the Noma Mazzara thing, I don't think is so cut and dry. Just curious what you guys think. So... I haven't talked to Dan yet today, like before the podcast, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be on an island here. Um, I, <laughs> I just, I know they traded Steel Walker for him. I think they traded Steel Walker because 
they thought that if Steel Walker went to double A and played at Birmingham, he was going to have like next to no value anyway. So they, they made an upside play. It clearly didn't work the way Frank Menachino kind of talked about him down the stretch. It was kind of like, yeah, I've tried helping him, but eh, I don't know. I, I don't know how you tender Nomar Mazzara if your payroll is already what it is. I mean, the White Sox have $81 or $81 million committed like pre-arb. So they're probably right in the 90 million, 95 million range now. And you need a starting pitcher and you probably need to upgrade Mazzara. So, you know, even if it's like Jock Peterson, you know, on a one-year deal, I think you use some of the Nomar Mazzara money for that. I just, I, I don't know how you tender him you know, the amount that he's going to take. It's not that they don't want to see him anymore. I just think year three arb, it's going to be too much money, like for an experiment, like when you're trying to win a division. Yeah, that's fair. And Dan, now hear me out, right? It would. It's like <laughs> what the White Sox do though, is that they're patient. However, it's a different situation within the organization these days. We saw it with their aggressiveness and moving on from Cooper and Renteria for one. But I, I'm just thinking that, they're apprehensive in letting him go so quickly after they're trying to, it was like a project to them. And then I just, I don't know. I'm having a hard time coming to terms with it. I, I think, I think they definitely need an upgrade there, but I also think that the White Sox value him and see something where they're okay. If we shorten up his swing, this is a process. This is the guy that we intended uh, in acquiring, right. For the steel Walker. And I agree with you, James, I think the value in, in, Moving on from Steel Walker for Nomar Mazar makes a lot of sense. It's just the time invested has me, and the way the White Sox operate, has me thinking that, okay, maybe they bring him back. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think well, Mazara came to the White Sox with like 1,900 at-bats in his career, in his major league career. So despite the fact that he was only 25 this year, you're still looking at a guy who is pretty much a known quantity. Not saying he couldn't get better, and 2019 was his best year in a lot of ways. But like, you know, his OPS plus was below 100. Like he was a bull, just slightly below average right fielder all four years and then was terrible last year. Um, you know, he's a sub one war guy every year of his career. Like you're, you're not going to get much more out of him. I mean, you'll get more than what you got last year, but I don't know that you're going to get like a solid starting right fielder. I think the only argument for keeping him is that the decision to keep him is not made in a vacuum, right? Like how much are the White Sox going to spend this year? Are they, you know, is Jerry going to say, look, we didn't have fans and we lost a bunch of money and, you know, let's tighten up a little bit. Are, are they willing to spend some money? Like, and if, and like we talked about already, if they spend money, it probably should be on starting pitching first. and. DH, maybe that's Vaughn and you don't have to spend money there, but like there are other spots that um, are more pressing. So you're definitely not bringing Encarnacion back. I think the only argument for Mazzara is they might just kind of default to him if they're being cheap. And, you know, I also think there's a possibility that if the White Sox go cheap, they just trade prospects to get guys, which I, I don't know that they really want to do yet. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, Vaughn, but like there are still guys in the minors that have value. Certainly they're, they're teenage pitchers, whether it's uh, Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist, Jared Kelly, like these guys definitely have value. I'm not saying they want to trade him yet, but like if you want to get a good 
starting right fielder, they're pieces that would, you know, be of interest to teams. So I think you can you can talk your way into a world in which they bring him back. That doesn't mean they should. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at, Dan. I'm talking myself into a world where they bring him back because I've <laughs> seen the White Sox do it so many times before. We have, but even, you know, even like what Dan said, like if they go cheap, well, if they go cheap, they shouldn't be paying Nomar Mazara $6 million in arbitration and they should just play Larry Garcia and Angle in right field. That's yeah. going cheap. Like that's, that's the cheap option. And I don't know that that option's worse after what I saw <laughs> this year. Like, I think the issue with Nomar yeah. Mazzara has always been like, this dude should hit for power. He should have more loft in his swing. And for whatever reason, he just doesn't hit baseballs in the air. When he came over from Texas, you know, I feel like I defended him. Like, I think a lot of people looked at him and they kind of did what Dan just did where, you know, they looked at like the totality of his numbers, which is completely fair. Right. But his final year in Texas, he had a 110 weighted runs created plus against righties, you know, and he hit like 20 homers, I think. Like, if if Nomar Mazzara had a 110 weighted runs created plus against right-handed pitching last year, like this past year for the Sox, like, that would have been awesome. Like, that would, that would have been fine. Like, that's not, you know, what you want long-term, but that would have been, like, completely warranted in a lineup as good as it was, it did struggle against right-handed pitching a little bit, but like, he didn't even do that. Like he was better against lefties. Like it was just an absolute worst case scenario disaster for him. And you know, that was though, because this is a guy who's been competent against righties and like was way worse this year. Yeah. It was very strange. Was it just leaving Texas? I don't know. I mean, I think he was sick and that has something to do with it. And I think 60 games, like, look, I mean, maybe in a hundred, maybe he picks it up and he's ultimately like, you know, still bad, but not as bad. And it's, it's okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, man, 60 games. I mean, you saw it happen to Edwin, right? I mean, either, like, I think they talked themselves into the fact that like Edwin was a slow starter notoriously and he started slow again. But then it was kind of like, Ooh, maybe this guy's done. Right. Like maybe like we've seen warning track power, with the White Sox, like we've seen what the end looks like with guys, with Canerco, with Die, with a bunch of guys. And that's kind of like what the end looks like, in my opinion. So honestly, like Vaughn's going to be up for the majority of next year, but I think they might have, they might have to add two bats, like in addition to the pitching that we've already talked about. Yeah, that's totally fair. I don't know. I'm just using, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure things out. And the Nomar Mazzara thing is so confounding because you want to give them you know, a fair evaluation, but really, like Dan said, the overall body of work really speaks for itself. And if my assumption is, you know, on the right track where they're trying to fix his approach and shorten it up and want him to make more contact. And as a result, the power will come from making more contact. Then maybe the value in Mazar that they saw will translate, but I just, I don't see that happening necessarily, but I think the White Sox may, may possibly believe that. So that's like, me telling myself, okay, maybe the White Sox want to keep him around, and if he's bad, then get rid of him later, you know. Um, but it's all—it all remains to be seen what they want to do this offseason in filling that position in right field. Yeah, and look, if right field is the only hole, it's a really random and unusual hole to have for a team that's got pieces everywhere else. But like, if that's the only hole, I think that's why Nomar Mazar in the first place was a reasonable experiment because he figured you'd have good guys at almost every other position, especially because they were expecting more from Encarnacion. So, you know, they took a gamble, but like the White Sox are in a good position in that they have solid starters at seven positions and certainly McCann helped them, you know, add a little more depth and add another bat, like whether they can give Grandal a day off or Jose and have Grandal play first or 
have one of them DH. So like they were able to get a little more depth that they probably won't have next year in that way. But you know, DH and right field, especially with Andrew Vaughn coming, probably helped the DH spot. But like those are two of the three or four easiest hitting spots to fill, right? Like so that shouldn't be a problem. This is a really good spot to be like, oh, we need a, a right fielder who can hit. Like, oh, yeah. there's twenty of those. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, that's that's good stuff, guys. Good stuff. We are moving right along here, and let's wrap up the podcast because I think we kept you long enough. Uh, Dan, you are leading the project here at Future Sox with the Rookie Review, White Sox Rookie Review uh, article series that we are releasing. Started with Luis Robert. We've already released Dane Dunning, Jonathan Stever, Cody Hoyer. Could you just take us through uh, what the plan is there and what you know, readers can look for as we continue to post these series of articles. Yeah, we're just trying to basically fill some days in the off season, and but we're putting some effort into these. So I think I think they've been pretty good so far. Um, kind of looking at why what what all the rookies did because there were twelve players who made uh, their major league debuts for the White Sox this year, uh, which is a heck of a number. I don't know that we would have seen that in a normal year, as we've kind of talked about throughout this pod, but. Um, so we're going to do a write-up on each of them. We have a bunch of them up already. Uh, and it's basically like, what was Luis Roberts' rookie year like? What, what went wrong? What worked for him? What do we expect going forward? Um, you know, on the pitching side, like the Jonathan uh, Stever one was interesting because it's like, here's a guy who never would have been up and kind of struggled, but maybe it was still encouraging. So we're kind of taking a look at that lens now that the, the dust has settled in the season a bit. So yeah, we're going to have, uh, we got 12 of them. Um, I suppose we could even add a couple more, like Zach Collins, Danny Mendick didn't debut, but we're technically still rookies. So if we want to follow the rookie review thing, we can throw them up too. Uh, yeah, young team, and we're we're trying to, to you know hit the future stocks angle of it. So I, I think those are going to be real good, so keep an eye out. This is going to be a very busy offseason, and I think we all know that. There's going to be tons of storylines to follow, not only within the White Sox, but also on the minor league side of things. We need to cover that. To the best of our ability, James, you have some international news. I'm sure you're keeping an eye on anything that you'd like to promote as we uh, wrap up this podcast. Yeah, so, I mean, I should have some sort of international review, you know, on the website in the next couple of weeks. Ben Badler and Baseball America have a lot of information out there. We've retweeted it. You know, it's the same names that I reported at Future Sox back in February. So there's really not that much of a change as far as, like, who the players are, but the you know, the whole program's different because the, the signing period was moved from July 2nd to January 15th. So, you know, we have like the international period coming in the winter, like at the same time as rule five and free agency and all this other stuff. So it's going to be, it's going to be kind of different. And then there's obviously two somewhat big fish out there and Oscar Colas, who everybody knows, and Yoel Cespedes, you know, I think the Sox have a pretty good shot at, at one of them. And I guess we'll just have to see like how that news goes, whether these guys are going to have showcases or just sign at some point or do whatever. But the Sox obviously have a really good history on that front with, you know, Cubans that are already like in their late teens or early 20s. So that's something to keep an eye on. So the White Sox finished their 2020 season 10 games above 500, make the postseason, but exit in the first round. They fire Rick Renteria, Don Cooper, Tony LaRusso apparently is uh, the number one candidate at this point on October 15th. But our panel doesn't really believe in all that very much. Uh, keep an eye on futuresox.com as we continue to update everything related to White Sox baseball, especially in the minor leagues. Dan Santoramita, great job 
Very good stuff as always. Thanks so much for jumping on the podcast. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yeah, thanks everyone for sticking through this long episode. Yeah, James, same to you, my friend. I'm sure we'll be talking uh, very shortly. Sounds good. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Like I said, go to futuresox.com to check out everything that we have to offer. Go to anchor.fm forward slash futuresox to check out our library. We are available on iTunes and on Spotify. Give us a like, subscribe, comment, do your thing, promote our podcast. We're trying our best. Really hope that you enjoyed this listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. For Dan Setho Ramita and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Appreciate your time. Talk to you all next time.